Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. The podcast where we don't want to tell you what to think. We just want to encourage you to do it. We are three friends that came from across the political spectrum who were tired of partisan politics and were alarmed at what we saw happening in our country, including the growing political divide. But we found as we challenged ourselves to recognize our own biases, to put them aside, we were absolutely united in our pursuit for the truth. And that's why we started this podcast to share the conversations we were having around that pursuit and to invite you into our conversation. To encourage you to feel free to ask questions. Search for the answers yourself to say what you think. That's right, because as we like to say, diversity of thought, ideas, and beliefs are welcome here. Asshats are not. (laughs) (laughs) All are welcome as long as you just think. Welcome to Just Think, the podcast. This is Holly. And Amy. And Kristen. And today we are so honored to be able to bring on yet another expert, someone who can come and explain the actual facts, bring the receipts and the evidence and their own research so that you can research and think for yourself. This is the first time I'm pretty sure in in the almost over a year that we've been having this podcast that we've had a legal scholar, not just a legal scholar. Let me first of all just say, Dr. Willem Van Art, um, he is he is not just your average legal scholar. He is uh, the author of numerous, by the way, peer-reviewed articles, which I know he's going to talk about in just a little bit. But he is an international human rights and constitutional law specialist. And again, a legal scholar that has been peer reviewed in in a lot of publications. And in fact, I got to read about you a little bit uh, today, Dr. Van Art, about how you um, have consistently ranked in the top 2% of academics globally on academia.edu. And of course that has like over 181 million academics, professionals and students registered to read your content. And I think this is important because we could bring on a lot of attorneys to talk about their interpretation of law, but you have been doing this for a very long time. I kind of liken it to someone like Dr. Peter Mercullah, who was a peer-reviewed cardiologist, the most actually in his field prior to the pandemic. And he consequently for sharing his wisdom, knowledge, insight, and research was penalized and still being. Uh, penalized for what he was willing to do, but was shocked at the backlash that he received for sharing his expertise. And I know that you have experienced some of that in your own way too, Dr. Van Art, but if you don't mind, we want to talk about this book that you have coming out that people are going to be able to read for themselves. But will you tell us what led up to you speaking out, writing, and ultimately writing this book um, about uh, the the rights that we have that were certainly taken away from us over the last two years. Can you tell us more about that to begin yes. with? Holly, it's great to be with you. Yeah, how the a book came about, Holly, I did my doctorate in, in public law in, in 2004. And when the pandemic hit, and, 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 and interestingly, the, the topic of my of my doctoral thesis, one of the the aspects I touched on was how to legally limit fundamental human rights during an emergency. So when the pandemic hit in in 2020, um, I remember it so well, my wife was in New York, 
Um, she was seeing some Broadway shows and, you know, she said it, it looks crazier. All the billboards here talks about this pandemic. And, you know, she, as all human beings, you know, she was frightened. And I, and I said to her, look, come back home. We, we live in Chicago. I said, come back. You know, we're going to look at this. And I immediately started looking at the data and the numbers. So I, you know, because there's very, very specific rules that need to be in place for an emergency to qualify as an emergency in terms of international human rights law. And, and we'll get to that in a bit more detail later. But so th that's where it started, Ollie. So I just started following the data and and it, it very soon became apparent to me that they are transgressing international human rights law on a scale unseen in living memory. And maybe if I can just go back a little bit and say, what is international human rights law? Mm -hmm. So international human rights law were essentially put in, in place after the Second World War and the atrocities committed by, by Hitler during, during, uh, during his reign of terror, and specifically his biomedical atrocities. Very, very specific rules were put in place. Um, the, 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 we all are aware of the Nuremberg Code that specifically says um, you cannot coerce people to get medical treatments against their, um, against their will. Um, but also um, the, 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 the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights is, a, is, 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 is very applicable. And that's a covenant that was signed in 1961. And countries like the United States are, are all signatories to that. All the major Western countries are signatories to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It's a legally binding covenant. So in a certain sense, you can say it is the supreme law of the world because, you, because all countries are, are obliged to adhere to it. And you must obviously read it together with with, with, with other international legal instruments, such as the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties. And very specifically, the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties um, states in, um, in section 26 that agreements must be kept. There's a, there's a legal phrase for that, pacta sunt servanda. That means if you enter into an agreement, you are supposed to honor that agreement. And also then very, very importantly, Article 27 of the Vienna Convention of the Law of Treaties specifically state that no state parties may invoke internal rules as a justification for breaching international uh, law. Because we must remember, if, if you look at what happened in, 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 in Germany in the 1930s and, and 40s, everything happened by law. Hitler declared various mandates, you know, to, to facilitate his various atrocities and to do what he did. So these things all, all, all always happens by way of law. It's just unjust laws. And, and, and as Martin Luther King said, uh, unjust law is no law at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So th that's really where it started. And, uh, and, and Holly, what, um, so I started investigating this and what really, really surprised me in, in 2020 um is I started writing very simple articles in terms of pointing out the rules relating to the, the, the just limitation of fundamental rights. And 
And various journals would come back to me with the strangest excuses because in the academic world, the process is simple. You write an article, you submit it for peer review. They send it for peer review and then the peer reviewers may come back and they say, what about this? What about this? You know, we don't agree with this. But I got the strangest uh, responses. I got responses from what you are saying goes against the, 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 the government policy. We cannot uh, uh, forward your article for peer review. Uh, they came back with things like, um, unfortunately, we've received a lot of uh, articles this month. Your journal, you know, we cannot accept your your article at this stage. Or they would say things like, "We really, really like your style. It's very comprehensive, but please, can you send something on a different topic?" Hmm. So you know, you so we. I was forced, like I think many researchers, to submit my research to lesser known journals, to open access journals. And I must say, there were there were a few. Uh, journals like uh, in, in South Africa, there was a major South African legal journal that did publish 80% of what I've sent them uh, following peer review. So, so there was a few exceptions. But I would say in the US and in, in Europe, it was almost impossible to publish an article in a major peer review journal uh, that did not reject it, just purely based on, on, on not going al along with a mainstream narrative. Hmm. Can I ask you too, why... Because I think it's interesting that, again, as we mentioned before, you've got Dr. McCullough saying the same thing's happening on the medical side, right? Exact same playbook in medicine as in the legal journals. Why do you think that's happening more so maybe in Europe and in the United States than perhaps other places? What Do you, do you have any insight now as to who or what's behind that? Uh, one thing is it's it's it's, uh, it's it's as Christine Anderson said in the European Parliament, follow the money. Yeah. And and I've I've actually got a detailed section on on this in in my book, you know, on on the scientific fraud that's essentially been committed during the COVID nineteen pandemic. There's no different way to put it. Uh, and and if you go and look at the funding structures of these various academic journals, the various uh, uh, um, universities, there's there's literally three or four major institutions, philanthropic foundations that are funding these institutions that 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 that, that, that disincentivizes these various institutions to uh, to allow people like myself and other researchers to come up out with the truth. Mm. Wow. Just remember when like in America we believed in especially in America especially, but certainly it's a Western ideal, I think, to say hey, it's the convergence and the debate of ideas from across the spectrum that helps us advance as a civilization and to develop and, and to innovate and to move forward as a society. It's when you let everybody's ideas come together, you rigorously debate them and you let it shake out. That's ultimately kind of how we figure out what's best, right? Yes. Well, that is the biggest shock to me of the last few years is that in every facet of society, from medicine to legal to the media, there is no longer all ideas are welcome. There really is the narrative and that's it. That's it. Well, I think what's scary is that most of the time, I think when we've even talked about this, we're like, how can they legally do this? Right. This is against the law. How can they do this? And then you're like, why aren't there lawyers speaking up? Why aren't there lawyers? I, I wanted to go back, go, go to law school. Her husband wants to go to law school. I'm like, I would be 
killing it in a class <laughs> lawsuit right now. But there are, but there are, uh, but I know that there's just obstacles out the yin yang. And I think that's what's scarier than anything right. they just is that the lawyers who like our justice system is corrupt. Like the lawyers can't even do their job, <laughs> do what they're supposed to do. So I, I don't know. Can you speak even to, to that? Like how, how can how they do, we, do how this? Do yeah. If a lawyer can't yeah. get past the law, we know we can't. <laughs> And and again, I, I think you know on the academic side specifically, there were structural issues. So so lawyers were uh, and and academics that maybe felt the way I did, you know, were scared to speak out. You know, I was in the in the sense in the unique situation. Um, I'm not a, a a a professor at at the university. I'm an extraordinary research fellow. So you know, I do my own independent research. I don't report to somebody and say, "Am I allowed to do this? Am I not allowed to do this? What's the policy?" So that definitely helped me a lot that I could just speak my mind and and and, and present whatever wherever the research led me. Because as you say, Ali, that's what research is supposed to be all about. It's not supposed to be a pre. It's not supposed to support a predetermined political ideology. It's supposed to to be various hypotheses, and then we say, well, what's the right answer here? Mm -hmm. uh, with and and that that principle of that that core principle of research, you know, has just been violated um, and and distorted during the COVID nineteen pandemic. But maybe let me come back to your question on 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 why, you know, and 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 maybe what people are supposed to do because as 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 you said in the beginning, Frederick Douglass said knowledge makes a man unfit to be a slave. Mm. And, and that is so important because I honestly think if people realize what happened over the past three years and, and, and they had the knowledge to understand that sacrosanct rights have been violated, criminally violated by a political and global elite in the pursuit of money and power, they would have not tolerated this. And um, I, I think firstly, um, you know, Mahatma Gandhi said, he said um, that, that, that civil disobedience becomes a sacred duty when the state has become lawless. And I yeah. think that is, that is where we're finding ourselves in. We can no longer adhere to these absurd uh, mandates relating to masks, vaccines, that make, just makes absolutely no sense. One of the key markers, Ollie, of, of, of law and of moral law is rationality. I mean, that has developed throughout the ages. So if, if somebody mandates a vaccine that neither prevents infection nor transmission, that is not only ir irrational, it is patently absurd. Mm -hmm. yes. Why would there be a law that mandates something that doesn't work? Um, <laughs> it just makes no sense. They, and they use the emergency use, as the experts. <laughs> they, they use the Emergency Use Authorization Act as their quote justification for the mandate. But can you explain to our audience how even that was unlawful? Yes, I would love to. <laughs> so if you if you look at the the emergency, and I want to make it very clear, uh, I've done, and, and, and I'm happy to debate any public official 
or any public lawyer on this matter. If you look at the, the emergency declarations in the United States and in the, in, and in the various in, in Western Europe, um, they were all unlawful and illegitimate in terms of international human rights law. And it's not that the rules were, uh, uh, you know, ambiguous or, or they were unclear. It's that we had a ruling political and corporate elite that willfully contravened international human rights law. There's no other way to put it. Let me, for instance, uh, refer you, and, 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 and as I said in the, in the beginning, I love that your show is all about listeners going and investigating this for themselves. All that I'll, I'm, I'm going to say now is publicly available. Um, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights can be Googled. All the terms can be said out there. But firstly, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article 2, determines that states are lawfully obliged to respect and ensure the fundamental rights of all people that live inside their territory. And then in relation to, um, to, 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 to emergencies, Article 4 is, is, is the article that you need to look at. And that specifically states that there can only be an emergency if the disaster or the catastrophe threatens the life of the nation and 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 so you need to ask yourself a question just from a common sense perspective did COVID-19 ever in 2020 in 2021 in 2022 threaten the life of the American nation no. a disease with a crude mortality rate of less than 0.3 percent anybody who wants to argue that such a, a disease has threatened the life of the nation it, it, it is just not a credible argument. But very interestingly, um, Oli, um, the American Association um, for, the, for the International Commission of Jurists in 1985 convened, and they drafted a set of principles uh, called the Seracusa Principles. And the reason they drafted these principles is because throughout history, uh, the emergency, a state of emergency is always used to gain totalitarian power. That's that's always the vehicle to use it. We must remember when Hitler claimed to be, came to power in 1933, the very, very first thing he did is he declared a state of emergency after the Reichstag fire. Uh, he declared a state of emergency and the whole Third Reich occurred under a state of emergency. Because in a state of emergency, what they do is they suspend the law in a, in, in a certain sense and then just do whatever they want. But let me come back to the Siracusa principles. So for an emergency to be legitimate, uh, it needs to be actual or imminent. Its effect must involve the whole nation. That's point two. Point number three, the continuance of the organized life of the society must be endangered. Point number four, the threat or crisis must be so exceptional that the ordinary measures or controls for the preservation of public health, order, and safety are plainly inadequate. Now, now, let's just unpack that a little bit. So, was the threat from COVID-19 actual or imminent? Let's just answer that. So, firstly... They tried when, to make when, you think it was. That's the issue, is they tried to make you think it was. It was the fear propaganda. 
you know but, but again let's let's objectively assess that so so the basis that they made the initial declar states of emergency declaration was based on the predictive mo modeling of the imperial college of london so that model for instance stated that a country like south africa would suffer suffer 300,000 fatalities just in 2020 guess what the actual number was in 2020 28,000 uh, for for the U.S., they predicted fatalities of two million people. So 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 those models were woefully inaccurate and simply wrong. It never presented an imminent threat to the life of a nation. That was just simply untrue. That's the difference, right? It was it was the prediction, not the imminence. It was a it was a we think it could, but not actually imminent. Um, we're calculable danger is that is that conspiracy theory well and even given the benefit of let's give the benefit of the doubt let's just give grace and say all right 2020 we didn't know what this was there's these prediction models saying millions are going to die okay maybe some of us could have been on board briefly <laughs> with the eua okay but now here we are in 2021, One, yeah. 2022. He's just extended it for 2023. How can he do that? So I don't understand. This is where, you know, you really got to stop and think. Mm -mm. I, yeah. I agree 100%. But the emergency so, is so, it, Yeah, I agree with it. So Danger. let's say we, we give it to them. In 2020, early on, there was, what, there was a bit of uncertainty. But by August of that year, the right. numbers were clear. Right. Uh, and and let's go uh, because and so let's go to the second principle of the Syracuse principle to to qualify emergency. It says its in its effects must involve the whole nation. So that COVID nineteen did it did its effects, and I'm now talking about the the adverse ramifications of that, not about the adverse ramifications created um, as a result of the lockdowns or those right, things. Right. Just the COVID nineteen threat. So so again. It's at this stage indisputable that the crude mortality relating to COVID-19 is less than 0.3%. Uh, we've all seen the research uh, by Dr. Ioannidis, um, the most eminent epidemiologist, confirming that the, that the worldwide infection fatality ratio, in other words, those who contract COVID-19 who actually die from it, is 0.15%. Mm -hmm. So there is no way any rational human being can argue that a disease with a crude mortality rate of 0.15% affects the whole population. It simply doesn't. Mm -hmm. you, you cannot credibly argue that. That's right. And then if we, go, if we go over to the third point, it says, was the continuance of the organized life of the community ever threatened by COVID-19? In other words, was the state apparatus, and now we must see this in context, so a state isn't only doesn't only consist of of uh, emergency units in hospitals or, or even of a health department or even so you've a state consists of administrate numerous administrative functions uh, to, to to secure public order. You've got a, a police force. You've got the army. Uh, you've got waterworks. You've got so many elements to a state, and all all that there really was at one stage there was a threat to ICU capacity. That's what they thought. They thought ICU capacity was gonna be under threat. And again, what happened in New York? They spruced up the Javits Center. They sent a comfort ship. Nothing got used. So they, that that didn't even come to fruition. But the point is just 
the organized life of the community was never, ever under threat. Not in the USA, not in any Western democracy, and for, for that matter, not anywhere in the world in relation to COVID-19. And, 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 and then the other thing, where we, we, we've had some great people stand up um, you know, during uh, um, when they launched that great Barrington Declaration, yes. and they were vilified for it. But yeah. the fourth point is, was COVID-19 crisis so exceptional that normal measures for public health and safety were plainly inadequate? And the answer is clearly, it wasn't. There was numerous other measures that they could have implemented. A protect the vulnerable approach as advocated by the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, using ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine as effective prophylactics. At this stage, it's indisputable. I mean, right. if you look at uh, countries like India and the success of Uttar Pradesh, it's impossible to argue against the effectiveness of ivermectin. Um, so, so, so just at this points I've raised. And again, these things are publicly available. Go search up the Syracuse principles. Go search up the, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. It never met the international criteria. And what's so shocking about this, Holly, is... The various international human rights peremptory norms that were put in place post-World War II was specifically put in place to prevent the biomedical atrocities committed by Hitler. And, and here we are, 80 years later, they are again coercing the public to take medical, uh, medical um, experimentations and medical inoculations that they do not want. Uh, and and it, it is against international human rights norms. Very interesting point. If you go and read Article 4 of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, specifically Article 4.2, it states that certain fundamental human rights may never, ever, ever be violated, not even during a public emergency. So we've now established that there never was a public emergency in terms of international human rights law. But let's say there was one. Then even in that case, there's certain rights uh, and norms, which uh, there's a legal phrase for it in Latin, it's jus cochens norms. These are norms that are sacrosanct. They can never, never, ever be violated. These are things like the abolition uh, of slavery, like, uh, you, you know, uh, just ex extrajudicial killings, just murdering people left, right and center. But one of those sacrosanct norms is the prohibition against um, medical experimentation without free and informed consent. If you read yeah. Article 4 together with Article 7, it explicitly states you are never, ever allowed to, 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 to force people into a medical experiment without their free and informed consent. And we all know this happened on a grand scale during the COVID-19 pandemic. And obviously there's, there's, there's various elements to coercion, but I don't think anybody can deny that people were coerced on a grand scale during the past two and a half years to take this COVID-19 vaccine, which is an experimental vaccine. Yes. Go ahead, Holly. Cheeseburger, $100 bill, <laughs> beer, yeah. donuts, all <laughs> Well, there was, I mean, there was offers of everything under the sun pretty much for people to go get them. And I know a question that Kristen and Amy and I have about that is for the people who did not want them and lost their jobs, 
Um, and, and, or they took it, had horrible adverse reactions. Their health is now probably permanently impaired as a result. What legal recourse do they have now? That was my question. I'm like, how do you sue? Who do you sue? You know, it's one thing like with the hospital institution or different businesses that are that mandate it. And that's what the government's going to do. They they throw it back to the businesses. So it's like uh, they're all the puppets. They don't realize it until this happens. But, you know, like who could somebody sue the freaking Biden administration for re reenacting the EUA right now when it's not a state of emergency? Yeah, I mean, like how, how what, yeah. what happens? <laughs> Why? Yeah. Only, like, uh, I Kristen, <laughs> I, I think what the, um, so, so I think there's various legal recourses here uh, that, that people need to look at. And obviously my advice would be to go and see your local attorney in the state or country that you, that you live, specifically somebody with human rights expertise. Um, uh, but, but if we, if we, for instance, so take the, 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 the whole, maybe the example of the person you said, um, didn't really want it, but now they took it to keep their job, and now they're suffering severe adverse reactions. Um, now, I think it's worthwhile to, to go into, into that a little bit on, on coercion, because it will ex explain my point. I mean, there's different levels of coercion. We must remember the Nuremberg Code and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights prohibit coercion. It's unlawful for any state or government or private entity to coerce people into getting a, a medical procedure that they do not want, especially the experimental one. But so obviously the, the, the most blatant form of coercion is somebody comes and pick you up at your house, uh, injects a substance into your arm. I mean, in that case, it's not even your action. It's their action, but still you were coerced. What we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic was more a form of subtle coercion. It was, well, you know, if you don't get the vaccine, you, 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 ca you cannot attend the ball game. Yeah, where I live, I was not allowed to enter certain shopping malls if I, if, for the fact that I was unvaccinated. And in many instances, people did not get the vaccine, if they did not get the vaccine, lost their jobs. So you had a choice. But it's not much of a choice because to, to, to choose between taking care of your family and taking the vaccine, I mean, that's not a choice. So, so people were coerced. So th th there was illegitimate coercion. But another element of this, let's say for the people that really believe that the vaccine could help them, there's another element where you need free and informed consent. So if I... You know, if a con artist sell you what he tells you is a blue, a rare blue diamond, but you later realize this is a worthless piece of blue glass. Mm -hmm. So you weren't forced. You were lied to. Mm -hmm. You were you were fraudulently induced into doing something that you would otherwise not have done. Or another example, a person is at a, at a function and he orders a glass of of beer. And, you know, what arrives at the table is something that looks like beer, it tastes like beer, only it contains cyanide. So can we then conclude that he willingly drank cyanide? No, definitely not. That wasn't a voluntary action. And then a, a third element to this is sound state of mind. And this constant, somebody in a state of manic depression or somebody that's constantly bombarded with lies and propaganda can also not make 
just rational decisions. Fair. So yeah. I think two elements that people really need to look out in, uh, you know, in, in terms of people that were injured or harmed or lost their jobs is firstly fraud in the inducement. Because I know that the general thing is, well, you know, they've got this EUA protection. So, so that does not apply to fraud. If I tell you that a vaccine is 100% safe and 100% effective, and we also we all know what the variance uh, utterances that were made by the by various public health officials in various countries and also by vaccine manufacturers. I think the major vaccine manufacturer is is on record. I'm not saying anything strange. I mean, Albertus Burla at one stage said uh, there was tests in South Africa done and a study and our vaccine is 100% effective. Well, uh, just coming that last month in the European Parliament, they stated it wasn't even tested for transmission. Right. So, so, so in, in my view, if you defraud people, you there, there is a case. Laws have been inter, uh, transgressed, and where people have suffered damages, they should take the appropriate legal action uh, against those institutions that committed the fraud. And and again, you know, they should consult their local attorneys on, on and lawyers on that. But the other very important thing, um, Oli, is is in in terms of international law, uh, it, it, it these are agreements between states. But there's a very important principle and doctrine in international law called the doctrine of state responsibility for human rights abuses committed by non-state actors, because a state commits to respect and ensure fundamental human rights to all within their territory, they cannot get away with a transgression of fundamental human rights um, be because they're saying, well, we we didn't limit freedom of speech. It was Twitter that did it. We didn't do it. We didn't force anybody to get a vaccine. It was, a, it was some big company. The state ultimately remains responsible and liable. So where people have suffered damages as a result of a state not uh, honoring the international legal obligations, they do have a legal right to, um, to, 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 to sue the government uh, for damages uh, because a specific or a particular state has not honored its international commitments. So basically what you're saying is the federal government of the United States of America could be held under international law, be held responsible for the fact that they did not protect its citizens from the actors within it that were coercing or were distributing these things, these, these vaccines to us. They could ultimately be the ones internationally held responsible even over, say, the vaccine company. Is that what you're saying? Like, but also like, that each individual state is responsible. Is that way? That's what so, I thought. I think what he means like, by states, like internationally, meaning the international. Yeah. So when I when, when like I speak of states state party, so the terms used in international law, a state party would be a, a okay. country. It will okay. be the whole United States of America. It will be Germany. It will okay. be Italy. Um, right. But but that's exactly what I'm saying. If you yeah. look at the plain wording of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, Article Two says, and as I said, all Western states. Uh, signed this this international legal instruments, and they said they there's a commitment to respect 
and ensure the fundamental rights to all those who live within their territories. And if they are if they are egregiously breaching these rights themselves, or alternatively allowing major actors operating within those states to violate those rights, they are responsible in terms of international human rights law. It's exactly what I'm saying. And again, you must read this together with Article 26 and Article 27 of the Vienna uh, Convention on the Law of Treaties. Um, and we must remember, um, Oli, these international instruments, these are the same instruments that the West eagerly quote if a country like Libya or Iraq or Somalia or whoever contravenes it, and they, they on, on the basis of that, they justify invading and declaring war against those countries. So surely, uh, yeah. you know, the same rules and principles should apply in terms of, well, if they expect others to do it, then surely they, they should themselves adhere, adhere to these international norms. That and then, and then another question I feel like our listeners will have because they've heard this for the last uh, year from us. When in 1986, when they passed the federal law that said you could not sue a vaccine company for injury, right? They they pretty much were considered you couldn't touch them if you had a, if you had an issue with the vaccine. Too bad they were not going to have to pay you for it. And we went from 10 to 12 vaccines to now. I think by the time a kid's 18 years old. 70 some vaccines, right? So we see what the law change did to our our collective health. And you could argue it wasn't good. Um, but my question to you is, does international law, would it trump our our United States law that says they those 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 pharmaceutical companies can't be touched? Is there a way around that law? And I'm going to say for Pfizer and Moderna, especially, is there a way around that law legally that you can see that people should look into? Well, but firstly, so if I look at, if I just look at the plain wording of the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, and I look at this Article 26 and 27 of the Vienna Law of Treaties, where you cannot say, well, I've got this internal law that breaches international law, so therefore I'm not going to adhere to international law. I mean, if all countries can do that, I mean, what's the purpose? That's the point, right. And, and, and we, must, we must remember, as I said, Hitler did everything by law. In mm. fact, during the, during the Nuremberg trials, that was the defense of right. Hitler's henchmen. They said, we were simply complying with the law. Exactly. I mean... Uh, we didn't do anything wrong at the time of us doing all of these things. That was German law. And, and therefore, it's important. So, so, I mean, maybe just to answer your question. So, so I don't think you can have inter internal laws that egregiously breaches sacrosanct international peremptory norms and then just argue, well, I've got a different internal law. Because if, if that's how we want to run the world, well, so, so, so then we're saying it's fine for... For, 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 for mm -hmm. another monster to come along and say, well, you know, it's law, yeah, we shoot people through the head who disagrees with us, uh, but, it, but it's our law. So, I yeah. mean, you can't say anything about right. that. Then you can it's an absurd argument. Yeah. 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 Well, I have a question. Is there, like, we need a coalition yeah. of uh, yous. Yes, yous. So, like, there's the, the Great Barrington Declaration where all these positions came together and, you know, we're trying to, like, is there a group I, we need more voices like yours, but like all together, because I know it is, it's, it's going to take the civil disobedience on our part 
And it's going to take, you know, nobody's coming to save us. We're going to have to figure this out and we're going to have to know our rights, know the laws. Like all of us, that's our own personal responsibility. But at the same time, if we had a group of collective um, attorneys, lawyers who knew these laws like you do, like, I feel like that could help advance this so much further. I feel like there's so few or like few right. and far between. Or, or they like just don't want to speak up or speak out. Like, it, do you have colleagues that are willing to step out where you are? And can, uh, what can we do to start suing um, Moderna and Pfizer? That's, what, that's <laughs> my question. I'm all over that. I will help. I will do anything. <laughs> that's that's and, all and Chris think, wants to know. <laughs> and I think that's going to be needed. Just in terms of, your, I'm not aware of an organization that, you know, that's prepared to speak out to the extent that I'm speaking out. And again, I'm, I'm more than happy to debate any legal scholar on this, the, on, on this issue. Um, and, and in terms of Pfizer and Moderna, I would honestly uh, advise anybody and, and their, their local legal representatives to go and look at the statements they've made over mm -hmm. the past two and a half years. Uh, in my view, there's a clear argument for fraud in the inducement. In my mind, it is a classic case uh, of fraud in the inducement. How, how can it others be? So if I come to you and say, I've got a medical product here. It is 100% safe. And it is 100% infective. In other words, what you're promising me is complete sterilized immunity. So by the time they came up with the first booster, th that was a lie. Because I only went for my polio vaccine once. I cannot right. remember going right. for my polio vaccine every six months. Right. Because it provided me with sterilized or near sterilized immunity. Mm -hmm. so, 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 so for them to come out publicly and make those statements... And they were backed up by, by, by the likes of, of the CDC, the European uh, e, e, ECDC, the African CDC. So, so I, I think people need to go and, and, and look at the whole issue around fraud in the inducement, fraudulent statements that was, was, was made. Changing definitions. I mean, I think that's how they're getting away with it too, changing the definitions. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a semantic strategy. Mm -hmm. um, yes. Absolutely. Speaking well, of, when you were talking about the in, the coercion, I was trying to look, if y'all had seen me on my phone, I wasn't trying to be rude, but I was trying to find one of our friends that we've been connected with. She's a nurse and she was in that situation where she had to get the shot to keep her job. And I think it wasn't her, like she actually had reactions after like her second and third, but then it was with her fourth or something like that. I know the primary see if she had something, but what she had to do was sign a form and I didn't want to get it wrong, but it was something to the effect of she showed me it. She had to sign saying, I am voluntarily taking this medicine. Oh, like I am, she, had to, she had to sign that she's voluntarily getting this injection, but it's like, you're voluntarily doing it because you'll lose your job if you don't. So when we talk about semantic strategy and coercion, that's what's going on. And it's definitely not informed consent. There's definitely the argument for that because we don't even know anything. They keep finding things out and we don't even know the ingredients in them because that's one of the things with the EUA. They don't have to disclose it. The insert comes blank intentionally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so it's definitely not uh, informed. I mean, that's the same in my mind. So forcing people to, to sign something, even if it says there it's voluntary. I mean, so what? If somebody holds a gun to my head and say, right. you must just please sign here and say it's voluntary. I mean, is that voluntary? Yeah. No objective observer will look at that set of facts of a person afraid to lose her job and now she's just doing something and she's signed. 
no, no objective, reasonable human being will look at that and come to the conclusion, yep, that was voluntary. She really, yeah, I mean, she just right. did something out of her own volition. Nobody forced her, nobody coerced her. She was coerced. That's mm. just called under duress, right? I mean, that's basically doing right. something under duress. Which, um, and, and we've seen, too, that there have been some cases, well, in New York State in the last month, where the um, uh, was it the was it the teachers or the the first responders? I can't remember which it was. Girls that they had sued the government to because they did not comply with the mandates and they lost their job. And the judge ruled in their favor and said, "Yes, you should not have right. been let yes. go from your job." Okay, so I don't know what uh, legal what legal reasons they argued for that. I haven't looked into it enough to see it, and perhaps you would know. Um, but. My, my question is, as I was told that none of those people had been given their jobs back yet. How does that happen? Because like, New York appealed it. They, appe they appealed the ruling. Well, right? but, but also it's because the government is making the businesses give them back pay. Like they're telling the oh. businesses to hire them back. And it's the business's responsibility to pay these employees the back pay, not the government, even though they were complying with the government's mandate it for them for the business to stay open right i mean that's that's what i gathered and it may be i'm sure they appealed to i'm sure that's out. part of it too but i just i had heard that and that's where i'm like oh see <laughs> but the point is is that the u.s government is going to throw it back on the backs of the employers of the american people they will not take responsibility for it they're going to throw it they're going to it's going to be nothing but constant blame shifting but I do have to ask you this question before um, before we end this conversation today. Um, Dr. Fauci, how are we going to make sure he pays? <laughs> I'm sorry, but I want to know yeah. how yeah. how do we get him? And I'm I mean, taking like, notes. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Step one. We want what, 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 what <laughs> I, um, as I said, I think what what needs to happen is, is the the people need to stand on their rights. Okay. They need to be, be prepared to engage in lawful civil disobedience, not to proceed with this, and lawful political action. And we must get to a stage where these criminally corrupt public officials are ousted from their positions of power, mm. and then we need to deal judiciously with the past there was this in the news there was this um article in the atlantic where where where, where the the mm. um oh, yeah. Emily Oster, she said you know let's just forget about it i mean you know you know we were in the dark all of nope. us we made some decisions but that's not a a, a way to to deal with this so there's actually a very, very interesting document, um, you know, in terms of dealing with the past. And it's also, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a chapter, it's a, I, 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 it's a chapter in my book, but it's called the, um, the Joint Orient Lichter Principles. And it's, it's just a framework on how you should judiciously deal with the past, specifically in the interest of truth, justice, reparation and non-recurrence because mm. there's really four things that need this there's really four rights if we look at people who suffered who were harmed because of the fact that their sacrosanct invaluable rights were violated people who died 
separate to loved ones, people who, who you know got injured due to this the vaccines. And these three, four rights is the right to know. People need to know, have a right to understand the truth of what happened here. Who was behind this? Who profited from this? Why did they lie? Why did the media collude the way they did? Where, how, where did the money come from? How did the money flow? So there's an important right in terms of international law, the, the right to know. And then there's a right to justice. Victims have a right to a legal remedy. And they've got a right to expect of their government to punish the perpetrators. Then a, a third right is the right to reparation. L like we've just discussed, people who lost their jobs, they should get their jobs back. People who, who, who's, who's, whose uh, breadwinners died as a result of taking this vaccine that they never wanted to take, they are entitled to compensation. Mm -hmm. And then fourthly, a right to non-recurrence. I mean, we, we need to, there needs to be proper forensic investigation to understand what happened here and, and, and rules need to be put in place at international level and at national level to prohibit this from happening again. I think, Oli, one of the, the, the key things in my mind that, that went wrong here is, is, is the ability of large corporates, corporate monopolies were able to, to, to uh, to form the narrative, to manipulate the narrative, and yes. to spread non-stop propaganda. And, and these monopolies were also involved in funding major public institutions, major international public institutions like the World Health Organization. So yes. rules need to be put in place that, 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 that we prohibit this from, from happening again. Yeah, and it's unfortunate that our entire system in, in the United States, the, the blessing of the last two years is it's been exposed yes. of how the money and power work, not just in this country, but throughout the world, but how the media, which used to hold the government accountable, right, it sort of was the voice of we the people, is now owned by corporations, by yes. the money and the power, and then they fund the government, they yeah. fund the politicians, and so it is a wicked web that they have created and we the people are lost in it. Now, one of the things I heard you say that I absolutely love is that you basically said there is no governing body anymore that's not been captured, it seems, right? That's not been captured by the wicked web. But the but there is but hope is not lost because if we the people stood up and did the things that you said and we spoke out for our rights, we lawfully disobeyed any unlawful laws, because as yeah. Dr. King said, that's not really a law, right? Yeah. If it's unlawful, it's not a law. Um, if we stood up, if we exercised our rights and our voices and demanded that our government call to account, just as you said, the people who have been, who have hurt the American people, then this could change. But it will require every listener to this podcast and beyond to yeah. speak up, stand up, do not comply. Because if we think they're not going to try this again, they just right. got away with it. You put right. an article in the Atlantic and you say, oh, you know what, let's just, just move along. No, yeah. no, 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 we're not doing that because that's the dangerous thing. It's like if you let your kid lie to you and there's not consequences, you better believe your kid's gonna keep lying to you. They're yeah. gonna do what they get away with doing. And this is the hour, this is the time that we stop being afraid to use our voices because and to, and to use our, our, um, our influence in whatever ways we can yeah. to expose 
the truth and hold these people accountable because something will come next. We already know in Boston, they were manipulating a COVID virus, you know, after Fauci said there's no gain of function research. And we're doing it in our own country in Boston with a virus that has an 80% lethality. They will create another thing. They will create another thing. They will create the propaganda and the fear. And the only way it doesn't work is if you decide it doesn't work, that you're not playing the game anymore. And that's what we need. Yeah, yeah, you can't comply yourself out of what you say totalitarianism or tyranny. Ter- 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 you you just cannot. You're so right. And but why I'm saying it's positive, and and, and that's what I want to encourage your listeners with. The rule of law is on our side, and history has proven over and over and over again that the rule of law wins. The rule of law eventually will establish itself against tyranny. Never wins. Tyranny always loses, whether it takes five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Tyranny just will not, you know, prevail over the rule of law. So in that respect, it's it's very, it, it, it's very positive. And the other thing that I quickly want to touch on is one of the things that, that we've all been fed, you know, in, in the media is this, well, you need to get a vaccine or you need to adhere to our mandates for the greater good. And that was such a false argument because for the greater good is the phrase that usually precedes the greatest evil. Um, and and also if you, a uh, 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 total falsity uh, that, that occurred during the COVID-19 pandemic was this narrative that fundamental human rights is something that you earn. It's something that you get for good behavior. In other words, If you put your little mask on, you can walk around outside. If you get a vaccine, you can have a job. In other words, uh, uh, fundamental human rights, according to this distorted, perverted narrative, is it's not something invaluable that's part of you as a human being. It is something you get for complete and total subservience to, to... irrational, arbitrary government mandates, which is a total lie. It goes against the natural law. It goes against human rights law that's been established over thousands of years. Um, we are we have human rights because we are made in the image of God. Yes. Day. That is that is why we have human rights. And even if you go and look at the natural law, you look, go and look at the theories of Hobbes, of Blackstone, all, you know, all part of the American legal tradition. I mean, you, uh, when, when, when a society is formed, because the theory is um, in, in the natural, you know, in, in the wild, all of us has got our hundred percent of our rights and we can do whatever we want, but then we form a society because because in a state of nature, it's an uncertain state and you must protect your nat- your rights against outside influence. But when you form a society, you prepare to, to, to sacrifice some of your rights. But the rights you prepare to limit are, 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 are relative rights. It's mm-hmm. rights in relation to people standing in relationships to one another in a society. It's never your absolute rights. You never give up the right to life. 
You never give up the right to bodily integrity or bodily autonomy. Nobody can ever come and tell you that to, to infringe your bodily autonomy is a right that we entitled to infringe. That is a lie. That's right. It's and it's remember Amen. even in the U.S. Constitution it says. I mean, it, I mean, what is it? The preamble where it says you are endowed by your Creator yes. with certain unalienable rights, which among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's important because it was not given by the government. Yeah. Our rights are because we exist in the image of God, because we were created. We were created with those rights and the government did not give them to them. Therefore, the government cannot take them away. 100% and they want to call us fringe lunatics, right? They want to call us, uh, sometimes it's either religious zealots or we're selfish because we didn't want to put a mask on and we didn't want to get uh, a vaccine. But what, what, the, what they could not understand was that we were looking at the science and the facts and nothing from April 2022 held up for me. Nothing. The fear, all the predictions were not coming to pass. It just required me and you guys to think, to yep. think and to be willing to exercise my God-given rights at, at, at whatever but, cost. Exactly. And I think it also is we realize that even if it is just a mask or just this or just this, those just are going to keep going. That was just the beginning. And if we didn't stop it then, it was never going to stop. It was going to snowball. And they kept trying to do that. So it took us doing this and it's going to take us to continue doing this. And what I was going to, I just wanted to throw this out there. If anybody remembered, you all know, Dr. Lee, is it Lena, Leanna Wynn that's on like CSMC? It just reminds me with the freedom, the rights. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've heard this where she said, um, we have a very narrow window window to tie reopening policy to vaccination status, because otherwise, if everything is reopened, then what's the carrot going to be? How are we going to incentivize people to actually get the vaccine? We need to make it clear to them that the vaccine is the ticket back to pre-pandemic life. That's why I think the CDC and Biden administration needs to come out a lot bolder and say, if you are vaccinated, you can do all these things. Here are all of these freedoms you have. Oh, the, this is what they were trying to do. It's exactly what you were just saying. If you do this, you get your freedom. I'm like, we have our freedom. Yeah. And <laughs> we have it. And that's what we're doing. We are operating, we are operating yeah. our, our freedom right now. <laughs> we we are free people. Nobody grants us freedom. We are free. And 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 it's not only, I mean, what is shameful and disgraceful is that heads of state came out with it. I mean, if you go look at, 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 at the, and these things are in the media, go look at what Bill de Blasio said in New York. He basically said, this is a beautiful city. It's like a magic kingdom, but your vaccine is your key to opening this kingdom. Jacinda Ardern of, of, uh, of, of, of New Zealand said exactly the same. They said, if you want to go to the hairdresser, if you want to go and get a haircut, you can do it. Just get that, a vaccine. So they basically you know, started treating unvaccinated people like a subclass of human beings, yeah. which is which is 100% unlawful in terms of international human rights law. Um, and, 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 and another thing that, 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 that people should also realize, I mean, there's all this terminology being thrown around, you know, about this global political and corporate elite. But if we just go back to the to the fundamentals. What is a crime defined as? A crime is defined as an illegal act. It's a it's an act against um, you know public that's morally uh, reprehensible. 
And, and if you look at the international crimes that's being committed and the rules that being contravened, these people are not elite. They, they, they are criminal actors that need to be held to account in terms of the, of the rule of law. That's it. That's it. And, and I love that you have put this together. I cannot wait to read your book when it comes out on fri uh, next Friday, the 25th. That I love that you have, just as you were giving us, we were all taking notes over here, by the way, but just you were giving us the actual resources to leverage to defend our rights and our freedoms. And because it's all written out, as you said, the law is on our side. Yes. And I'm going to encourage everybody to go get Dr. Willem, Willem, Willem Van Art's book, which is called COVID-19 Lawlessness, How the Vaccine Mandates, Mask Mandates, and the perpetual state of emergency, hello, are unethical and unlawful in terms of natural law, the social contract, and modern international human rights law. And what I also love about you and what your peers even say about you too, you write in a way that the average non-attorney can understand. And I think that's important because we can't, we can't, that knowledge is power. We need the knowledge that we can understand and that you're pointing to the resources. We tell our listeners all the time, bring the receipts. We're going to bring the receipts to your table. We're going to show you the evidence of what we say, but that's what you do in this book. And I think every American needs to know and be ready to flip that book out yeah. um, for now for, to hold them accountable for the past, but moving forward to the future, we will not have a free country. I already think that we don't have a free country and that's been evident we're not operating in freedom because we don't feel like we can even say anything without fear of retribution and so and so i i want to encourage everyone to get your book when it comes out is it going to be on amazon what's the best place to go get it yeah. on amazon on, okay. on amazon and the the the, the ebook version is out already but the paperback will come out around the 25th Perfect. Okay. So you guys can already get a sneak peek at the ebook version and see all these things. We're going to, um, we always put together a sub stack after the episodes with all of the um, links to the things we discuss. And so what we'd like to do, Dr. Van Art, is, is link your book there, um, but also, and we'll go ahead and link the ebook. And then of course, any of these, uh, anything else you think that the listeners could benefit from, from a legal standpoint, to know your rights and to defend your rights, uh, we just appreciate you so much. I have loved this conversation because, how, and how can some people like contact you? Like if people are listening, like lawyers, I mean, I really would love to have like this huge coalition. coalition. Of lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, like, I'm sorry to interrupt you, Holly. I know we're wrapping up, but like, I really would love to like have, you know, have, if anybody, I don't want, not that you need to be bombarded and stuff, but we We're want to volunteer you, but <laughs> I don't know. I just, welcome to quantum. I've got a website so called just COVID www.covid19lawlessness.com. And there's a contact section there that they contact and it gets directly to my email. Okay. Perfect. 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 Yeah. Because I do think just as the doctors are making more headway together than they are alone, um, in terms of, I mean, that's how they even got early treatments out, right? Was they got together and they were figuring out what worked and then they were so excited to tell the public only to be met with just abs horrific response. Um, Absolutely shameful. Whatever. Shameful response. But to have more of you um, is what we all need because in, in the way that we do hold people accountable in this country is through the law. 
So yes. we need we need your expertise. And we unfortunately, there's not a lot of courageous people anymore, it seems. Um, so we need courageous um, legal scholars and lawyers to help us advance the cause and to fight back. We really yeah. do. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you very much. So much. We appreciate you so much. Yes. Thank you very yes. much. Can't okay. wait to read the book. All right, we'll <laughs> see you guys. <laughs>